Welcome to the Outside Inside Radio Hour, a volunteer-produced project brought to you by Prison Arts Collective. Prison Arts Collective is founded on the belief that art is a human right and is dedicated to bringing the transformative power of the arts to people experiencing incarceration. Our collaborative teaching teams include faculty, students, and staff, and our classes include art making, art history, reflection, and the cultivation of a safe space. We are based in the School of Art and Design at San Diego State University and have additional chapters at three CSU campuses, San Bernardino, Fresno, and Fullerton. Prison Arts Collective is a project of Arts and Corrections, an initiative of the California Arts Council and the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. The Outside Inside Radio Hour is a way for us to communicate with our participants and with the wider public through video and other media as an extension of our distance learning project created in response to COVID-19. Each of our guests is a return resident who continues to pursue a creative life. All right, so today we're gonna to be talking with Carol Alden. She's a sculptor and a fiber artist living and working in Utah. She's self-taught in several mediums and believes in the importance of keeping sight of your vision while remaining tenacious and flexible. Hi, Carol. Hi, it's so great to be here. Thank you so much. Yes, uh, how's it over there where you are? Well, today we're having a beautiful day. It's sunny and it's not too hot and not a, not a lot of wind yet, so. You know, but does it usually get pretty windy? It can get really windy. Um, we had 110 mile an hour winds uh, a couple weeks ago with a storm that came through and I thought my chicken coop was going to be airborne. So oh <laughs> there's nothing like running out in the middle of the night to uh, cut the ropes on tarps. You know? Oh my so, God. <laughs> so that your chickens don't end up in another county. <laughs> well, I hope all your chickens are okay. They make it through. Yes, they did. They okay. are good. Okay, good. <laughs> um, all right, so uh, let's get started. Um, so I know you've been an artist for a while, um, pretty much most of your life, but kind of what did you start out making when you first started kind of ex exercising your creativity? Well, that was when I was very, very small and I was enamored with clay. And, you know, back then you had the little long chunks of uh, plasticine clay that came in different colors and it just it's grease clay basically so it doesn't harden but it's a huge step above play-doh and uh, I used to make all the characters in the storybooks that my parents read me um, for bedtime stories and uh, the first time I was in kindergarten and I made a series of sculptures the teacher called my mother in and said now I know this is your first child and you're really proud of her but you need to stop helping her with her homework <laughs> so they thought your mom made them. yeah they did my mom was so mad she's like Carol is there clay here go get it <laughs> and I whipped out the entire cast of Winnie the Pooh you know and so the teacher had to apologize but uh, yeah oh wow so you just you're able to just do it on command then oh yes oh yeah. wow so you don't really need to do a whole lot of planning just kind of go for it well, you know, it depends on what you've observed. I mean, mm -hmm. if it's, it's like when I want to do a sculpture of a specific animal, I used to get every single photograph from every angle I possibly could and just, you know, paste it on the wall and live with it for like a month. And then by the time you're done doing that, 
you can sit down and sculpt it without looking at the pictures and have it come out pretty accurate. Oh, yeah. I think that's that's a pretty amazing talent, though, because I don't think everybody can do that. So the fact that it's so natural for you, that's that's really cool. Um, did you graduate to anything, any other mediums as you got older? Well, I built my own foundry when I was about 18 and I started sculpting in bronze. Um, and then I got married and when I had my first child, I switched to fabric work because, you know, if you're raising your own kids at home, it's not very conducive to toddler safety to have something that you're taking up to 7,000 degrees. <laughs> yeah. How do you go about building something like that? <laughs> well, you need a big metal pipe and some refractory cement and you make, you create a, a blast furnace. It's like a chamber that you can pipe gas into to ignite and then you have a blower to keep the fire going and then there's a variety of different ways to cast things i mean you can do sand casting which is the probably the most simple way but i was like carving things in wax and then um you do a set them in plaster and then burn the wax out and then pour the metal into the the void that's left from the wax being burned out Wow. So, so you just did it pretty much the way that they've been doing it for yeah. centuries and just made it yep. all yourself. Yep. That's really impressive. Back um, then, no, you actually had to go to the library and find books. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do things like that. Now there's a YouTube video for everything. <laughs> yeah, definitely a lot more effort um, than you'd have to put in now. Um, so what did you have to adapt when you started working in softer materials compared to the bronze well fabric if you're if you're used to working in clay and you know any kind of medium that you can just carve parts away or add parts to it you know um, those kinds of mediums once you put something there it stays you know the yeah. way you want it and when you're working with fabric or any kind of fiber it's like this constant struggle of how do you make it hold its shape mm-hmm and that can be very frustrating. There's a huge learning curve to that. And, you know, I started out just making toys for my first child. And then I started entering those into um, art shows and they were winning awards and people were, you know, very enthusiastic about it. And so I thought, huh, well, this is interesting. Well, maybe I'll, you know, stick with this for a while. So I did that. I did variations on soft sculpture work. Um, clear until um gosh my fifth child was like eight seven or eight years old and then i figured it was safe enough to start doing things that you know you could tell a kid you know don't go near this <laughs> yeah um it sounds like you kind of uh a lot of your stuff is really whimsical um you know starting with storybooks and then moving on to toys for your children and um you know once you started moving into other things i know you work with sea creatures a lot so could you tell me a little bit about what it is about sea creatures that fascinates you so much uh part of it is that we know so little about them and there's so much of the ocean that is you know we're not able to explore yet and there's just amazing forms of life down there and so I like to bring elements of that 
you know, to the surface basically so that people are more interested in finding out about other forms of life. Um, we probably, there's probably more about the world that we don't know than we do know at this point, but people get complacent in the, the things that, that we know a lot about or that we think we know a lot about. And sometimes they just don't even bother to look at other stuff. So, you know, it's a way of, of continuing my own education and getting other people excited about learning. And they're just so bizarre. I mean, they look like they're from a different planet. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think, I think that's great. And I mean, I think that applies a lot to, you know, other people as well and, and other ways of life. And so yeah. I love that. I love that that's your reasoning behind it. Cause I do, I think we, we all need to kind of be more curious sometimes. Mm -hmm. Well, to go to the, just jump to when I was in prison and people, I'd always ask the young people, you know, why did you do drugs? You know, what caused you to do drugs? And the majority of them have told me because they were bored. So yeah. we've gotten out of the uh, habit of, you know, researching things in life that we're curious about. You know, there's no reason to ever be bored in our world, none whatsoever. But we're so used to this instant gratification of, you know, games and pushing a button and, and you know, all the, the technology and the video stuff that when that's not um, right there in front of people or if they're bored with what they have, um, you know, there's got to be something else to do. They have to get, like you say, you have, they have to get back into the habit of being curious. Yeah. Instead of just plunking themselves in front of something. Um, because honestly, you know, most parents don't have time to give their kids the quality attention that they need anymore. And it's really sad. Um, so do you think that, uh, was that part of the reason that you got into working with yarn while you were in prison? Was it a bit of like a lack of stimulation and a lack yep. of available means? Yes, absolutely. I mean, when I first went to prison, the only thing that was available was drawing and you had eight colored pencils that were, you know, kindergarten quality and not really any drawing paper either. You had some uh, blank just, it's kind of, it looks like the paper that is crumpled up inside your shoes, you know, when you buy it. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's the kind of paper we had to work with. And you have one big pen and one pencil. And if you're lucky enough, you can buy, you know, a set of very low quality eight colored pencils for about eight bucks. So, you know, that's what I started out with, and I saw people crocheting, but it really wasn't anything that I was interested in. I mean, for the one thing, everybody was counting all the time, and I have severe math anxiety, um, any kind of numbers. I can't remember numbers. If I'm confronted with numbers, um, it does. It gives me anxiety. I just kind of have a panic attack. I remember my mother's phone number, and that's it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Everything else I have to write down and, and look up. But, um, so I thought, no, this is nothing for me. And, but after three years, I thought, you know, I'm going to be here a really long time and it would be stupid for me to spend all this time here and not learn some sort of a skill. And there was no educational opportunities whatsoever at the Utah State Prison at that time. So I decided to go ahead and let somebody show me how to 
crochet. And this poor woman for about three hours tried to show me how to do a single stitch. And I finally just said, yeah, I got it. Thanks. Because <laughs> I was really too embarrassed <laughs> to admit that I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. And it was just a mystery to me. But that later that night, I guess it was probably about 10 o'clock at night, I had this vision in my head of a salamander. And I imagined the yarn as if it were like a line that was drawing around a three-dimensional object. And uh, kind of like doing contour lines around something. Like if, if you had like a cup and you just drew around the exterior of it and you know had it expand and, and contract depending on the shape of the cup or whatever object that you're drawing around and that's how I envisioned crochet to begin with and then I fiddled around until I had something that didn't fall apart and by morning I had a salamander and then, of course, everybody was, well, you lied. You didn't <laughs> anybody to teach you how to crochet. It's like, well, either I crocheted in a previous lifetime or I'm an idiot savant. I don't know. <laughs> but within two weeks after that, I was making fish that were going to museums. And so it was just a really fascinating experience. And, and I still, I can't read a pattern. I don't know how to do normal stitches. I made everything up as I went along. And so, you know, I'm not constrained by how things are supposed to be done. And for me, that's very freeing. But at the same time, you know, if you do the legs on one side of the, the animal and then you have to do the ones on the other. And it's like, I have no idea how I did that. So it's kind of like crochet forensics at that point <laughs> to try to get things to match. I just kind of eyeball everything. I don't count anything. I never have. And I don't take things apart. It's... Uh, that just seemed way too aggravating. It's like, well, it's going to come out how it wants to come out. And <laughs> I'll figure out what it looks the most like when it's done. I think that's really interesting um, that you mentioned that you approached it sort of the way that one would do a contour line drawing, like those scribble drawings that you do uh -huh. in a beginning drawing class. And I think that's so interesting that it was easier for you to learn on your own by trial and error. and um, I kind of, I'm curious as to whether that's, that's generally, is that how you learn things in life? Is it easier for you to kind of like take space to yourself and figure it out and give yourself room to make mistakes like that? Absolutely. I mean, I, I always do as much research as I possibly can on something. And I have absolutely nothing against, um, listening to people who know more than I do. I love it when I find people that know a lot more about a subject than I do. Um, but, you know, I kind of go for the full immersion learning process where I just, when I'm interested in something, I completely surround myself with everything I can find about it. And eventually it feels comfortable, you know, but most of my projects, to be honest with you, I have dreams. And in the dream, it's like somebody uh, showing me a video of how to do something. That's amazing. And so when I wake up, it's like, okay, well, I'm ready to go. And at that point, the only kind of research I do is like, oh, say, okay, I need these specific tools. Which tools would be the best for the job? As far as the actual project itself, 
you know, I'm pretty much good to go. That's really cool. So it's kind of like it's, it starts as a fully fledged thing and then you just kind of like work your way towards yeah. it. That's, that's really cool. Yeah. I if that. I see what it looks like, you know, I'll have a vision of what it looks like done. And then I kind of, and then I go back to the beginning and, and work through the processes that need to be layered. And, and that's the main thing about most of my work. Some of it looks really complicated, but it's really just lots of layers of very simple techniques. And so by the time you're done, people are like, wow, I can't even imagine how you did that. <laughs> because if you take one step at a time, you know, just about anything can be easy if, if you look at it that way. But a lot of people, that's the biggest problem that they have when they're interested in art is that um, they're too intimidated by the final product that they see to, you know, go back to the beginning because they just automatically tell themselves that they could never do that. And that was one of the biggest hurdles that I worked on with people when I taught classes um, in the prison was just to convince people that, you know, yes, you can do this and I will show you how, you know, but we're going to start with something really simple. And then once you learn these techniques, you will be able to have visions of your own as to how you want to combine them and come up with something that's entirely of your making. That's great. Um, so on that subject, I know that you want to eventually expand your teaching practice and your art practice to um, teaching art classes to victims of domestic violence. And I want to know, how do you think making art and being engaged in learning art can help people learn the agency that you, you need to rebuild who you are after? that kind of a situation? Well, there's so much about the culture of domestic violence that encourages secrecy and keeping things to yourself and not talking about it. And even if you do talk about it, oftentimes people that are your support system will say, well, if you don't leave them this time, we're done. You know, don't, don't talk to me about it again if you're not going to follow my advice. And that is absolutely the worst approach that you can have to somebody that's struggling with domestic violence because, you know, the psychological things that are going on are so complex and so layered and somebody who hasn't been through it, they really cannot grasp, you know, the everything that a woman is, is contemplating and weighing before they get to the point where they're either ready to leave or they feel that they can. And so to work with art, kind of like you say, it unlocks a part of your um, cognizance between your emotions and your logic to where you're expressing your innermost feelings and you're doing it in a safe place. And if you can get in the habit of expressing yourself, then that frees you from the shame and the guilt and feeling like you shouldn't talk about it or worrying about how it's going to be, you know, the reception you're going to get. And, you know, it really empowers a woman to be able to put something on paper or a canvas or sculpt and say, this is how I feel. You know, because sometimes words are not adequate. And uh, I had a therapy session with 
a domestic violence counselor while I was in prison. And she says, oh, you're an artist. I, you should draw your feelings. I said, okay. <laughs> and so I did the series of drawings. And when I turned them in, her eyes got real big. And she's like, ooh, you don't feel very good, do you? And I was like, no, I don't. <laughs> but I was able to express the terror and, uh, you know, how small you feel and, you know, just just feeling like, like prey, really, and not, and feeling trapped, and, you know, the moment of standing up against that, and how liberating that was, even though, you know, they're, they look down on uppity women with guns in Utah, it's, uh, (laughs) you know, it really was an empowering situation, and I do not regret defending myself. Yeah. So it's, but it, it, but it's hard in our society. Yeah. And, and claiming space in general, I think as a woman is something that not everyone knows how to do. And if they do know how to do it, they're not necessarily comfortable because you're told for years that, you know, that's not, that's not for you. Right. I was raised specifically to believe that you know, a wife's duty was basically to just kind of keep everybody else calm and do whatever it was that everybody needs. You know, you're kind of the great facilitator in the um, the happiness of the family. You know, keep your husband happy, keep the kids happy, make sure the house is always clean, food on the table, so on and so forth. Um, the one piece of marital advice that I was given was, if you have something really important to ask your husband, wait until you have fed him. And if it's really critical, make sure it's after you've fed him pie. You know, so. Oh my gosh. So it's really yeah. all about kind of tailoring your experience yes. to somebody else's needs. Yeah. It's like when my mom finally got to the age where she's in her, she's in her mid eighties now. And, and I've, talked to other women in the position and they just don't even know who they are or what they don't even know what they're interested in they don't know what they should be doing with their life they have no idea because their entire life has been about catering to other people's needs I find it really metaphorical now that you've said that that your fish house piece started so small and now it's it's going to eventually evolve into not only a large piece, but a large piece that can accommodate people being inside of it. (laughs) Um, So do you want to talk a little bit about how that project started? Well, when I had been in prison for about 10 years, I was starting to, I figured I had five years to go and I was contemplating what I was going to do with my life, how I was going to configure it when I got out. And I already knew that housing was going to be an issue. And I wasn't sure how I was going to restart my career. And so I thought, well, I should really build myself a tiny house that is a sculpture. And that way, when I'm traveling cross country, I can teach classes, Um, it can be a studio, and just the visual aspect of it is going to get people's attention. It's going to be free advertising. 
People are going to want to know why on earth I'm driving around in a giant fish. And it would be something that I could build all by myself, you know, and I could do it mostly with um, recycled materials. And I figured I'd probably be able to accomplish it for about $6,000 all total. And I thought that's, that's within my grasp. If I start like saving now five years in advance and uh, that would be great. And I talked to my kids about it. And of course, you know, my, my kids humor me, but I also had granddaughters and I thought, you know, my granddaughters are all artistic and intelligent young ladies. And I thought it would be really fun as a family project to, you know, involve them and, and teach them some construction skills and just show them the nuts and bolts of how to build things. So I decided to create a yarn sculpture of one to scale. And, you know, so they would have something tangible to look at because it's hard to express your ideas to other people. And, you know, they can't see what I see in my head. So I embarked on creating this sculpture of a fish house, you know, and I released it at one of the, the visits that we had. And, and then, um, oh gosh, months later, there was an art exhibit that I really wanted to enter, but I just didn't have time. And my daughter had several of my sculptures, and uh, she said, well, why don't I enter this one? And I said, no, I don't really feel like it's professional enough for this venue, because it was a museum setting, you know, where you're competing against people doing bronzes and things. And uh, she didn't listen to me, and she entered it anyway. And I get this phone call, and first of all, it's terrifying to get a phone call when you're incarcerated because the only phone calls you get are the ones that tell you that something horrible has happened to a member of your family. And so I was extremely distraught when I was called out to take this phone call. And there's this cheerful woman on the other end of the line telling me how happy she is to talk to me and that my piece was accepted into this show. And the, Utah Museum Commission wanted to purchase it for their permanent collection. Well, I didn't even know what piece they had to begin with. <laughs> I was like, uh, what piece do you have exactly? <laughs> and uh, at that point, I found out that they had two of my pieces in their permanent collection that I had no idea about. So that was very interesting. But then the money that I was awarded from that, I utilized that to purchase this 1975 Dodge RV and I'm redesigning a fish house type situation so that that's what I'm going to do with this RV is I'm going to tear it apart and build a new frame on it and it will be a combination of welded steel and crochet and fiberglass. I love that and I love that you're going to involve your family um and the fact that you know this thing that that you had sort of thought oh this isn't this isn't fine art this is craft which is you know traditionally associated with women's work but you're translating yep. it into something that's traditionally associated not right because you're building a vehicle with yeah your children. I think that's great. And, and the fact that that vehicle is going to be a home to healing for so many people. Um, I'm really excited to see where it goes for you. 
Well, I would like to drive it cross country and I want to especially target rural areas um, because domestic violence in rural areas is, there's so much of it and they don't have the kinds of services that you find in urban areas. I mean, we're not up to speed anywhere on how domestic violence is handled, but especially in rural areas, there are no shelters. There are no support systems at all um, to help women. And, you know, your income, everything is usually tied to your land. And so to simply tell a woman, well, why didn't you leave? Well, it's like, well, where are they supposed to go? And if you know that if you leave, your partner is going to, you know, abuse your animals, kill your animals, burn your crops, whatever, then, okay, so then what are you looking at? Even if you can get separated from him, your livelihood is gone, you know, and then you're going to lose your land and lose your house. And, and then women fear losing their children when they don't have um, adequate resources to take care of them. So it's, the dynamics are very different when you're in rural areas. And oftentimes, especially in Utah, when you get out into the smaller areas, it's still a very uh, patriarchal kind of situation where women are expected to just be quiet and be good. Yeah, that's, you know, it's, it's hard because you, you're making a very sacrificial choice, no matter what you choose. Um, it's, do you sacrifice your, your emotions and your body, or do you sacrifice everything that you've worked for in yeah. your life? And I can see how that's, really hard that's a hard choice well yeah in my my situation it was like it was my land my house you know I had a herd of alpacas and llamas and I was using their fiber I was shearing them and spinning the wool and working on tapestries and you know it was my way of supporting myself and they're really I mean as far as the general job market is concerned I don't really have any marketable skills and like I don't know anything about technology or anything that people do anymore and so you know when you've built a skill set over a lifetime it's something that you want to go back to and that you want to you know embrace and re-explore i think that we need many more people um who learn how to make art who learn how to make things that are physically present and i think that you're doing really great work and um we're going to wrap it up here so what's you know maybe one last thing that you want to leave people with well the thing that i enjoy most about doing artwork is being able to put something out in the world that gives people joy and when you can be somewhere and people are walking by and you see little kids grab their parents sleeve and say mom 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 <laughs> you know, then and people remember it for the rest of their lives and it inspires them and it like I said it gives them joy and I think we need to do more things that give each other joy that's beautiful well thank you so much um, for taking the time to talk with us I hope that you know you have a great rest of your week so excited to have met you and talked with you oh, and you, you definitely inspired me.
It's never too late. Thank you for that. (laughs) Every day that we wake up breathing is a day that we can do something different and something new. Thank you so much, Carol. Never too late. You're very welcome. Thank you very much. If you'd like to learn more about today's guest, you can find further information on our Instagram at Prison Arts Collective. To find out how you can help us continue to provide our programming, please visit our website at www.prisonartscollective.com.